turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 1. You can find it on page 774 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. Uh, this morning we're going we're gonna to be looking at verses 4 through 6. So Jonah, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Now, <clears throat> I've never been what I would consider or call a risk taker. I've always tended more towards the sure bet than the high risk reward route. I want to have a handle on a situation before I jump into it. When my mom used to ask me, if your friends are jumping off a bridge, would you do the same? I'd say, depends on how high the bridge is. <laughs> so I really wasn't the kind of kid you had to worry about jumping off a roof or trying to ride one of the cows in the pasture behind our house. But a lot changed for me as I went to college. I found myself open to more risks. I actually wanted to push myself. I, I wanted to find out firsthand what I could and couldn't do, so I got into stuff like kayaking or scuba diving, rappelling, and, and stuff like that. I wasn't reckless, but I guess I'd just say that I wanted some danger in my life. I, I wanted to be in the middle of the challenge, and I felt that way even after Ellie and I got married. If God called us to a dangerous mission, I was ready and I wanted to go. But things changed a bit in the summer of 2018. <laughs> Ellie and I were flying back from a mission trip to East Asia. Uh, we had gone there to do some campus outreach in a city that was not open to the gospel, where we had to be careful. Now, not a lot of risk to us, more risk to the people we knew there. So you did have to be careful, but it was kind of fun. And um, so we had a good time. We were flying back. I'd seen a lot of good fruit. And um, I've been on plenty of flights. This is not my first time flying long distance. Uh, so when the pilot came over the intercom and he said, hey, we're going to be seeing some serious turbulence. Everybody sit down. It's going to be rough. I really wasn't worried because I've heard that plenty of times. And I'm always, okay, whatever. <laughs> but then somewhere over the coast of Japan, we had one of the roughest rides I've ever experienced. And normally... I think I've been excited for some turbulence. I like being reminded that I'm in an airplane. I don't like just sitting there. So I, I like having a little bit of something. But this time it was different. I, I could feel something was changing inside me in that dim cabin. Because about a month ago, prior to that, Ellie and I had just found out she was expecting Titus. And so as this plane shook up and down with each round of turbulence, I simply could not get my mind off the situation. I remember literally breaking into a sweat and thinking I was going to dent the armrest because all I could think about was in the very low chance that this plane didn't make it to Chicago, it was going to be taking my entire little family down with it and there was literally nothing I could do about it. That was humbling. And that thought really got to me. It gripped my heart, and I found myself praying, maybe as hard as I have ever prayed, that God would spare our plane, and that more importantly, he would spare the, the life of my, of my wife and my child. It was uncomfortable, because I felt helpless. And it wasn't just my life, it was the life of my wife, and the, and the life of our little son, who I just could not get it out of my head, hadn't even gotten a chance to see the world yet. Now, maybe the situation wasn't as bad as I thought it was at the time, but that really doesn't matter because it had this effect on me, this feeling that I had never had to struggle with before. In a moment like that, all the odds, the probabilities, the logic, the reason, none of those things were comforting to me. It didn't matter that there was a low chance that we could crash, 
the indisputable fact was that there was a chance. And the ongoing turbulence that shook around us was a constant reminder of that chance. In the end, the only one thing that proved to give me comfort in that situation when I felt so out of control was knowing that God is good, that he hears the prayers of his people, and that he is the Lord of tempests, a fact which is proved to us here in Jonah chapter 1. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call to your God. Perhaps the God will will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Now I'm assuming most of you know how the story of Jonah goes. So I'm taking a little bit of liberty to move through this a little slower and to leave you on edge for next week when I don't actually anticipate finishing chapter 1, actually, at all. Uh, Last week, we started the book of Jonah, uh, and I said, as we did, that the book of Jonah is intended to refresh your understanding of who God is. Namely, it's a book that's intended to expose us to the surprising compassion of God. We observed God's compassion last week in the way that God sent the prophet Jonah to call against the city of Nineveh, which is that Assyrian city to the northwest. This week, we gained a better grasp of of why God's compassion is so extraordinary and amazing as we gain a better understanding of his majesty, his power, and his holiness. He is not a God who can be ignored, and his sovereign rule extends to all things, even the ocean. He is a God who is worthy of our fear. In fact, it stands that in order to respond rightly to God, to receive the care and the compassion that he has so richly and graciously poured out on the world, we must first and foremost come to him rightly with fear. As Psalm 47 verses 1 through 2 verses 1 and 2, call to us. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Likewise, Psalm 25, verse 14 says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Just as the book of Jonah would have us to rejoice in the steadfast love and compassion of the Lord, so it would seek to instill a right fear of God within our hearts. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. The main idea, the main takeaway uh, from this passage I want to give you this morning is simply this. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. And what I want to do in our time in this passage this morning is to show you how God graciously instills a right fear of himself in us. 
There's a progression in our passage this morning that explains the way that God blesses people with a right fear, with a right regard for Him, which results in a right relationship with Him. So on our three, uh, three points that we'll see is how God goes about this. We see at first that He exposes us to the power of His might. He exposes us to the power of His might. Second, we see that He will see how He shows us the futility of all other saviors. He shows us the futility of all other saviors. And finally, we will see and rejoice in the God who saves those who are perishing. He saves those who are perishing. First, though, we want to look at how God awakens us to fear, to fearing Him correctly, by exposing us to the power of His might. Now, we all remember God called Jonah to go to Nineveh specifically to call out against them because their evil had come up before him. Last week, we considered how this was actually a merciful act on God's part. God did not have to let the Ninevites know this disaster was coming. Instead, he was sending Jonah with a message to them to warn them that judgment was headed their way with the understanding that they ought to repent. But Jonah, as we see, wanted nothing to do with this mission, and he ran the opposite direction in an attempt, we're told, to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now Jonah managed to make it out of Israel. He managed to get out of the promised land. But we all know there was really no escaping from the presence of the Lord, even when he ran to the ocean. So as we follow Jonah along the landscape of Israel to Joppa, that port city there on the west, then, and then we follow him down into the boat, which was destined for Tarshish, which is basically the other side of the world, we're suddenly reminded that the Lord is God, not only of Israel, but over all creation. And though Jonah disobeyed God and chose to try and run away from him, and away from the mission he had appointed for him to take, we can clearly, very clearly see that God was not about to be done with him. In verse 4, we read about the steps that God took to corral this rebellious prophet by hurling a great wind upon the sea. Uh, that's, that's what we read there. As Jonah ran, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship that Jonah was on threatened to break up. Now, as we read about this, this was a terrible storm. You can always tell how serious the situation is by the way that old veterans react. If you're on a plane and the stewardesses look nervous and are trying to get to their seats, odds are the situation is worth your being concerned about. When a salty old sailor starts to pray, things are bad. Take a, take a second to listen to the language here. The Lord didn't just appoint this win. He didn't just send the wind. He hurled it upon the sea. It was, it was so strong, we're told, that the ship itself was threatening to break up. And the sailors who were on the ship were afraid for their lives so that each man was crying out to his God for help. These men are doing everything in their power to stay alive, even if that means throwing the cargo that they're taking from one place to another off the ship. They're just trying to keep the boat on top of the sea instead of under it. They're in a desperate situation. Think, things are bad, and they knew it. There, there are two things to notice about this storm. First, we see that this storm was from the Lord. I was listening to a sermon recently from Charles Spurgeon in which he remarked how in a modern society where we have grown to understand the science of how these, all these different powers, forces of nature that are at work in creation work, that we often forget that God is the one who sets those things in motion. 
uh, the scriptures will have us to understand that the natural cause and effect that we observe in the world has its first cause in God, who designed it, who sustains it, who rules over it, and who uses those things to accomplish his perfect purposes. Jonah will have us understand that this storm was in fact from God. It wasn't a coincidence. Uh, this is coming at a time normally uh, we'd expect where their sailors, if they're, if they're making this sort of voyage, you would do this at a time when you expected there not to be weather. The sailors themselves knew something was extraordinary going on here. And it invoked a sense of fear in them. It's particularly plain and obvious to us that God sent this storm because we're told it was sent by God. This is meant to communicate to us the reality that God truly is the Lord of all the earth. That unlike the pagan ideas of the day, His rule and His reign are not bound to any one territory, any one nation, any one area. He's not the God of the earth only. He's not the God of Israel only. He is the God of all creation. The sun and the moon and the stars and the planets and the oceans and the seasons and the rivers, they all obey Him. They do what He created them to do. They are, they are subject to Him. And He works in them and through them according to His pleasure for His name's sake, as we clearly see Him working here. There's a certain aspect of this display of God's power which may not be completely obvious to us, but which would have been obvious to the sailors who were on the ship and to those who first read about this experience. At this point in time, most people associated the sea with chaos. The sea is always moving. It is always without rest. It is always changing. It can take your life from you in a moment. This is a common idea that you see across the board in different cultures that would have been prevalent in Jonah's day. Something the pagan soldiers, or sailors, sorry, the pagan sailors would have been well familiar with. It's a theme actually we find in the Bible itself when it's describing how God created the world. If you remember all the way back to Genesis 1, verses 1 through 2, we're told that when God created the heavens and the earth, that the earth was without form and void and that darkness was over the face of the deep and that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in creation, when God makes the world and ordains all of its rules and sets all of its boundaries, he's bringing order to a chaos. Job likewise poetically describes how God, by his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. And then Job says, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? There is only one who has authority and power to speak to the wind and the waves so that they listen to him. I, I, I encourage you all, go to Lake Michigan this afternoon and see if you can make it still. You're meant to see this power of God in the way that the storm is described. This is a passage that is meant to give you just a taste, a, a glimpse of the power and the wisdom of God so that when you hear how the Lord hurled this wind upon the sea, your, your heart just skips a beat because it gets a small glimpse of the power of God. This passage is meant to be a gut check reminding you who rules. They say, that only 80% of the ocean has, 
has that sorry they say that 80% of the ocean has never been mapped that it has never been explored and that it hasn't even been seen by humans 80% it's a place of mystery to us and yet it is not to god god formed the ocean the oceans he directs it he calms it he stirs it up He is the master of the hurricane. The typhoon answers to him. He created dolphins and he created the anglerfish, the great white, the whales, and plankton. I love Psalm 104 as the psalmist looks at the ocean and declares, O Lord, how manifold, how evident are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. Only the fool would stand before the ocean and not feel himself for the small creature that he is. Only the fool would look up at the stars and fail to marvel. Only the fool would stare at the blazing sun and not feel his weakness. And yet all these things are created by God. By a God who speaks them into being and who cares for them in a way only he can. This storm that fell on Jonah and his ship was from the Lord. It had a purpose. And that brings us to our second point, which we're meant to notice here. It was meant to get the attention of the men who were on board the ship. This, this no doubt, this, there's no doubt about the anger of the Lord that must have been stirred up against Jonah for his disobedience. But notice that the Lord didn't hurl this wind at the sea or raise up this storm in order to kill Jonah. No, for all of Jonah's stubbornness, we see that God restrained his hand. The ship threatened to break up, but it didn't. As much as this storm was an act of God's power, it was also an act of God's mercy which he used to steer Jonah back to the task he had given him to do. At the end of verse 5, we're told that Jonah had actually gone down into the inner part of the ship. Uh, Not only that, but we're also told he had lain down and he was fast asleep. Uh, There's actually a play on words here which is easier to detect in the Hebrew than it is in the English. When our author tells us that Jonah had gone down into the ship, he's actually using language that we typically find associated with death, like when someone goes down into Sheol. The storm that God hurled at at Jonah was intended to awaken him, to return him back to the path of life. So as much as the storm exposes to the fury of God's power, it's also intended to show us the power of God's compassion as he awakens sinners to the desperation of their sinful situation. Uh, This storm is intended to make us fear the Lord, to regard him rightly as the one who kills and who makes alive. It's intended to reemphasize to us that God is God and we are not. That he is our creator and we are his creatures. That though we bear his image, we are not God's equals. As we look at Jonah, we're seeing the compassion of God and the holiness of God launching a tactical strike to bestow the blessing of right fear and reverence on sinners, such as Jonah was and so also as the sailors who were on the ship were as well. 
God brought these men within inches of their lives to wake them up to the reality that He is the one true living God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. As unpleasant as this storm was, God was flexing his power in a visible way to awaken these men to the reality of who he is with the result that, as we will see, that they turned from fearing false gods who cannot save to fearing him. So that brings us to the second way that we see God bestowing the blessing of right fear on people. We see that God does this by showing us the futility of all other saviors. God shows us the the futility of all other saviors. If, as you're reading this, if you haven't picked up on the big theme which dominates this passage and the rest of this chapter, then it's this: it's fear, right? The the, the the mariners are afraid. Jonah later will say, "I fear the Lord," and as he tells them who he serves, the sailors will absolutely freak out. Okay. So fear runs throughout this whole passage. We're told in verse 5 that the mariners were afraid for their lives because of the storm, and that because of that, each one was crying out to his own God. Each one had his preferred deity, and he's crying out to him. This this storm brought these men, we see, to the end of themselves. They were experienced sailors, but this emptied them. They were using every bit of expertise they had. They were throwing anything they could get out just to keep this boat up. But the storm was serious, and so we see for all their efforts, they were convinced that without some sort of divine intervention, they were all going to die. This storm displayed something. It displayed the futility and the weakness of these sailors, and it also exposed the futility of each god that this man, each man was crying out to. Now in verse 6 we're told that the captain of the ship went down into the hold where Jonah was asleep and he woke him up saying, Arise, call out to your God. We're, We're in a real bind here, man, and I need you to pray. Because if you don't, if something doesn't happen here, we're all gonna die. Okay? When a captain of a ship is talking like that, you know things are bad. This storm really brought these men to their knees. It brought them to a place where they felt the reality of their weakness, similar to my experience on that plane over over the Pacific. It rocked them out of this illusion of control. Ropes and sails, anchors and chains, they can only do so much. And experiences like this are unsettling because they make you realize just how fragile your life is and how little control you really do have over the comings and goings of your daily life. In their time of need, we see that each one of these sailors turned to his own God. Now, reading that seems really silly from our perspective, right? After all, we we know that the reason that these gods are unable to deliver these men from the storm is because they're false. They, They don't exist. They aren't in control. You can call on them all you want, but they can't help you. So we think to ourselves, what a bunch of silly sailors. Here's the thing. Though we may not cry out to Baal or to Zeus or to Poseidon, the human heart is still given to idolatry. We are no different than these sailors in our thirst for security. And so we put our trust in things that promise safety to us, but which in the end are unable to deliver us. John Calvin has wisely observed that the human heart is an idol factory. 
We may trust in our talents. We may trust in our families. We may trust in our leaders. We may trust in our investments or in our jobs, in doctors or in science and political theories. We clip the lifeline of our hope, our faith, and our trust in these things. And they look good because they're tangible. They can be measured. We can grasp them and hold them and we feel like we can understand them. And while in the end they look firm, we see that they are unable to hold the weight of the future. And they prove to be futile saviors. So, friend, I just want to encourage you, take a moment to search your heart. What are those favorite gods in your life? Search your heart for lesser saviors. Ask yourself, what is it, if it were removed from you this morning, would drive you to despair? What is that thing that if it were taken away from you, you would find your gut just full of rocks? Friends, move. Stock markets crash. Political parties fail. Bank accounts dry up. Death comes. These lesser saviors promise much, but they can't deliver you any more than these God, than the gods that the sailors were crying out to had power to stop the tempest of the sea. I remember uh, how my old home group leader confessed one time in a sermon, and of all the sermons that I heard at our previous church, this is one of the ones that really stuck in my mind. He said in the sermon that there was a certain number he had in his head that as long as his bank account stayed at or above that, he felt secure. Man, that's a gut punch. Because as I listened to him, I thought, you know, I have the same thing. And it's funny that as, as life changes, how that number seems to grow. Oh, I have to have this much. Oh, I have to have this much. If I have this, we're good. Whether it's a bank account or anything else, we really like to anchor ourselves to things that, that promise security, things that we can touch, taste, smell, hear, measure, give, that, that, things that give us a little extra confidence. Things are going to be okay. But the harsh reality is that those things dry up and fail us. There's only one anchor, one rock, one foundation that can actually handle the weight. There's only one God who's able to save. And so as we look at this storm, the storm that God sent, we see how God was emptying these pagan sailors and even Jonah of lesser saviors. How he was pressing them with this display of his power and his might to show them that the only one who could deliver them from this position of death was him. So that brings us to our third point, the God who saves the perishing. Look with me again at what the captain of the ship said to Jonah as he woke him up from his sleep. I love this. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This is just a wish. There are two kinds of people on this ship. The sailors who are in fear for their lives and Jonah who's asleep in the hold. Regardless, we see they all needed to be saved from the storm. You've got to wonder how on earth Jonah was able to sleep through all this. I mean, this is like trying to sleep on a roller coaster. When the captain of the ship finds Jonah downstairs making zero effort to pray, he was astonished at him. How can you possibly sleep at a time like this, Jonah? Maybe you don't care about your own life, but what about ours? So get up and pray. 
If this ship has to go down, then let it only happen after we have exhausted every possible resource. Now, this captain doesn't seem to care who Jonah prays to. Everyone on the ship has their own set of gods, which they, they were praying to. What he says to Jonah, I think, really actually fits very well with what we know about this captain and his pagan background. But it's something, I think, to see that this ungodly man was better in tune with the situation and the need to pray than Jonah, the prophet of God, seems to be. Uh, this man was desperate. He's looking for a way out, not knowing God, not, not knowing that the storm was from God or that God hurled this storm at the ship because of the way that Jonah was on the run from him. This is the way we see that desperate men behave. Uh, this is the way that soldiers pray in foxholes when they're pinned down by artillery fire. And though there's a lot to be said about the directionlessness of this captain, we see that it says a lot about the true and living God in the full situation. Uh, it's, it's this statement, I think, that he makes at the end, which I find really profound. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will just give a thought to us that we may not perish. Friends, I've got good news. The same God who hurled this storm at this man's ship, the same God whose righteousness and holiness would rightly consume him in an instance of his perfect justice, is the same merciful, compassionate God who not only gives a thought to those who are perishing, but who delights in rescuing them the same God who stirs the sea up calms it. Listen to the word of the, that the Lord says in Isaiah 51, verses 12 and following. I, this is God, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down into the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heaven and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, You are my people. For Jonah, there was no maybe, no might, only the sure reality that God hears the cry of those who are perishing and cry to him. While God had sent this storm to bring this captain and the sailors to the end of themselves, and while he had sent it to wake Jonah from his sleepy stupor, he had also provided them with a way of escape, a way of salvation, because he is a God of great compassion who delivers those who call upon his name. And this is the crux of the issue, the, the reason the story of this storm matters. Because while it expresses to us the fearsome power of a sovereign holy God, it also is a story of good news and deliverance. Because as it, just as it points us to this God of power, it also points us to the Son of God, who the Father sent into the world to seek and to save the perishing. As we study the book of Jonah, we're going to see some amazing parallels and some important differences between Jonah and Jesus. Signs which Jesus himself recognized and spoke of, which help us better understand what Jesus has done for us. The first real example of that is found here, which is why we only made it three verses. 
if you look, if you if uh, in Matthew chapter eight, verses twenty-three through twenty-seven, you can turn there if you want. But I'm going to read from it. Jesus is on his way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and Matthew says that when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Do you notice any similarities between those two passages? Two great storms, two sets of sailors who were scared out of their minds, looking for deliverance, looking for someone to save them because they are perishing. We have two prophets who are asleep in the boat while this storm rages on. Are you starting to see a connection here? Because I am. I also see a significant difference. You see, the sleeping prophet in Matthew 8 is also the Son of God. And his rebuke of the storm makes us understand the true riches of God's mercy and his commitment to those who are perishing. Which is to say that in calming the wind and the waves, Jesus is amplifying the message of Jonah 1, verses 4 through 7. Showing us that God is worthy of our fear and our reverence, of our love and our faith, of our affection and our obedience, because he is the Savior of those who cry to him. Looking at Jonah, we know where this storm came from. We know the Lord. We know the one who is able to deliver this crew from the rage and the fury of the sea. But as we look at it, I think we see Christ. And, and we see that, that in a way that is, we see these, these things being proved to us in Christ in an even clearer way. The big difference between what we read in Jonah and what we read in Matthew is that whereas Jonah, whereas in Jonah we have a sleepy, disobedient prophet, with Jesus we have a sleepy, obedient Savior whose tiredness shows us that he is both Son of God and Son of Man, who rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith, but then saves them in this display of power that belongs only to God. So as we come to what Jesus says about himself in John 3, 16, we see the blessing of the fear of the Lord comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, who was sent by the Father into the world, not to condemn the world, but to seek and to save the lost, to establish through his own death and resurrection the promise that everyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The deliverance that Jesus brought is not just for people whose lives are in physical danger, but for souls who are in the path of an eternal wrath and fury, which we rightly deserve because of our sins. With Christ, there is no may, no maybe, no mere thought. There is only a sure promise that has been established in the shedding of the blood of Jesus on the cross for sins, that all who come to the end of themselves and seek salvation in Him will find it, that they will be rescued out of the storm of God's righteous anger, a storm that rages and their own souls will be calmed, and they will have eternal life because it has been given to them by the God of grace who loved us even while we were yet sinners and has rescued us from darkness.
Proverbs chapter 14, verse 27 says that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn from the snares of death. This morning we've witnessed to the eyes of these sailors that God is great, that he is worthy of our reverence and fear. Furthermore, we've seen how God works in us to bring about a right fear by emptying us, by showing us the futility of all other saviors. And finally, we've seen the full effect of the fear of the Lord since we've seen how God delights in saving those who are perishing. So brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, let us guard ourselves from sleepy souls and sleepy hearts that take God and his salvation for granted. Let us look to Christ, who is the pinnacle display of God's love and salvation, since he bore the storm of God's just wrath towards sin on himself to restore us in a right relationship with him, which we can have through faith. And so let us be quick to point others to the God who hears and the God who delivers. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the way that you rule in creation. Each breath, as we breathe it in and as we let it out, is a gift. Help us not to take that for granted. More than that, Father, give us a right view of you and your glory. We thank you that you are a God who is just, but also that you are a God who is gracious, who does not clear away sin by ignoring it, but deals with it and saves us, saves people like us, sinners, (coughs) from that sin. Father, we pray this morning as we continue in our service, as we, as we celebrate together the way that you have done that in observing the Lord's Supper, that this message will be imprinted on our hearts and that we will rejoice in you, our God who saves, the Lord of the tempest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.